At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. A few weeks into my freshman year of uh, college, I was sitting in a lecture in Intro to Cultural Anthropology, one of those fun intro classes you have to take as a freshman that you really don't have interest in, but you got to do it, right? General electives, just part of the process. And I'll never forget this specific day. My professor was lecturing that day, and he was a quirky guy. He was shorter. He had a face that looked pretty similar to Sean Connery's, so that's kind of how he looked, but he had this really kind of thicker European accent, and, uh, and he, he was just one of those kind of gregacious guys, and he was teaching, and he was talking about something, and I was probably half-tuned out, until he said this. I'll never forget it. He said, evolution is definitely true, and don't give me any of your Christian nonsense, or you can get the heck out of my classroom. Now, he didn't say nonsense or heck. He used much stronger language than that. And it was odd. In the moment, there was like this kind of silence that came across the room for a second, And then he just moved on and kept teaching. I, on the other hand, sat there kind of frazzled for a second and thinking. I had just kind of was in the journey of coming back to my commitment to faith. I'd grown up in a Christian household, but had really not been walking with Jesus for a while. And my freshman year of college, God began to do some work. And I remember feeling like partially defensive and, and partially ashamed and partially not even sure how to respond to what was going on. What, what I would come to find over the next four and a half years through college, yes, it took me four and a half years, um, is he wasn't the only professor that had that perspective. Often through that journey, I encountered teachings and people where the essential idea was, if you're a Christian, that's foolishness. That's stupid in comparison with the learnedness of the academy. We have better knowledge than that archaic sense of how the world is and what we as human beings really need. And I remember so much through that time wrestling with my faith at times and and asking those questions as I was listening to people much smarter than me challenge what I believed to be true. And, And there were times where I genuinely felt like, well, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm missing, maybe, oh, oh, and there was a lot of wrestling that happens. I think as we continue to live in an increasingly secular world and society, that all of us face those challenges now. Not just in academia, we face that in all the spheres of society. It seems more and more the sense is we have a greater knowledge, a greater understanding of who we are as human beings, of how the world is, we have greater technology. Christianity, that's something of the past. That's foolish. That's stupid. Now, on one hand, we probably shouldn't be too surprised by that. I mean, the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago that the message of the cross was seen as foolishness by the world. Even in his day, they thought that the story and message of Jesus was dumb. So on one hand, we probably shouldn't be too shocked. But that doesn't mean we don't wrestle. That doesn't mean sometimes when those challenges come, there aren't the questions that naturally rise that say, man, can I really trust in God's wisdom, in his word, in his power, over all this other stuff that comes 
When the world sees it as foolishness, can I still hold on to the fact that I think, as Paul says, it's the power of God for salvation? What actually can cause us in those moments or help us to trust in God's wisdom over human wisdom? That's the kind of next section that Paul gets to in this letter that we've been studying. We've been in this series that we've called Divided, where we've been studying through the first chapter of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And Paul wrote this letter because he had founded this church, but this church was experiencing incredible division because they had started to adopt and bring in cultural values and ideas that were shaping their community in a way that was contrary to the truth of Christ. And Paul essentially writes a letter to challenge them and encourage them to not be a people divided, but to be a people that are united in Jesus. And to say, don't follow the patterns of the world but instead make Christ the centering point. And as we saw last week, as he encourages that, he reminds them, listen, the truth of the good news of Jesus, of his life, death for sins, and his resurrection, the world isn't going to vibe with that. But you hold fast to it. That's the power of salvation for you. But now as Paul's unpacked that, he begins to move to say, I want to help you understand that in a deeper way, to help you trust more fully that the message of Jesus really is the wisdom and power of God. And to do that, Paul invites his audience and invites us today to consider two realities about the nature of salvation in Jesus, which is what the message of the cross is about. The first one we see come right away in verse 26. If you have a Bible, look again with me. He says, For consider... Your calling, brothers and sisters. So Paul's asking them now, consider something. Think, think about something. Draw something to your mind. And this is what he says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. The first thing that Paul asked the Corinthians to consider and that we need to consider today in order to trust more deeply in God's power and wisdom is he says, consider whom God saves. Consider whom God saves. He invites the community as he unpacks this message of the cross. He invites them to say, look at what God has done amongst you. Look at who you are as a community. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are powerful. You don't have noble birth. He essentially looks at them and he says, hey, when it comes to the world, you guys are like nobodies and no ones. That, that's who you are. You, you don't have what the world prizes. You don't have the wisdom and intellect that the world thinks is what is necessary. You, you don't have power. You don't come from prestige. But then Paul goes on to say, but, but actually that's exactly whom God has chosen. That's exactly the people that God works through. Paul invites them for a moment to consider their calling. This idea of calling is important in his letter. And in fact, this is the fifth time in the first chapter that he's referenced their calling as a community. And as he invites them to consider their calling, he invites them to recognize that those who are called are not the ones that the world actually values and prizes. You're nobody. 
But, Paul says, that's a great yet or but, but that's exactly whom God loves to work and show his power through. What the world prizes is not what God prizes. He's setting up that contrast. So why would you follow the patterns of the world? Remember, the Corinthian church had begun to follow that. They began to prize certain aspects of their leaders and then divide over that. Wisdom and rhetoric. And, what, and they were saying, we'll follow those leaders, the guys who speak well. And they were not united in Jesus because of that. And Paul's saying, well, why would you follow that? God, God doesn't work through that. God, God works through the lowest and the least and the last. That, that's where the power of God is ultimately shown. Think about it. Think about yourselves. Are you really the best? Paul's saying, no. Why? Because that's, the world values those things. They value wisdom. They value prestige. They value power. I mean, you want the clearest example of that? Look at the rise of social media influencers in this last generation. Right? This has become a thing now. We have on social media people who literally their full-time job is influencing other people. And primarily, the way people build their platform in that space is by presenting themselves as beautiful or powerful or with certain connections. And the world consumes it, right? We, we're obsessed with it. I mean, these people amass tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of followers because of the prestige, the power, the beauty that they present. And we're naturally in our flesh, we're drawn towards that reality. We, we don't fill our social media feed with the homeless and the people we don't think are smart. No, we fill our social media feed with the people that we think we want to be. Oh, they're stronger than I am. They're better looking than I am. Maybe I could be that. Maybe I could live that way. Maybe I could experience that. Right? In our flesh, we're drawn to the world's standards. But Paul says, God doesn't work through those standards. And if you look at yourselves for a moment, you recognize, I'm not there either. And so he says, when you consider whom God saves, you begin to see a different reality emerge. The question, though, becomes, well, why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God seem to work through the powerful, the wise, the prestigious? Why does God seem to work through the last, the least, the lost? Well, Paul gives us his reason in verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God call the lowly and weak? Why is that where he chooses to show himself most? Well, Paul draws on the prophetic writing of Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 9.23. And he essentially says the reason God does this is so that no one can come into the presence of God and brag or boast about themselves. The reason God chooses the lowest and the weak is because in doing so, he removes the ability of human beings to make much of themselves. Paul knows that when we center ourselves on our pride, ourselves, how great we think we are, that that always ends in disaster. Whether it's our wealth, our power, our human accomplishment, when we put our trust in those things, it does not result in the flourishing for our lives and our world. But in the end, it ends up in brokenness and sin and destruction. Whenever humanity moves into a place where they trust themselves over trusting God, the result is always sin and death. That's how it was from the very beginning. 
And that's still how it is today. And so Paul comes along and says, hey, Corinthian church, followers of Jesus, don't trust in yourselves. That's not where your hope is. That's not where life is about. That's not where flourishing is found. Instead, trust in Jesus. Don't you see you're dividing because you're trusting in you more than you're trusting in what God has ultimately done for you. And so he says, consider, consider whom God saves. Because when you do, when you actually see yourself rightly in view of God, you'll recognize that you don't really bring anything to the table. When we really consider the reality of our salvation in light of God's holiness, in light of what he does and who he is, then we will begin to recognize that God shows us grace not because we earn it or deserve it, not because we bring some worth or merit or something to God for him to look at and say, oh, that's a good person, I'm going to save them. When we're really honest about whom God saves and what he does, it causes us not to move towards God in pride, but to move in gratitude in humility. And so Paul's saying, look, look at yourself. Recognize whom God chooses to work through. And he does that on purpose so that you don't boast. So when you even come before God, be careful of making much of yourself. Because that's not a place where you're going to move towards trusting in God more that's a place where you're going to move towards trusting the wisdom of the world. The author of Ecclesiastes, one of the great wisdom books in the Hebrew Bible and what we call our Old Testament, reminds us of this when it encourages us to think about how we approach engaging the house of God. The author writes this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The author's reminding us, God is, God is above you. Right? You're, you're on earth. You're a lowly creature. Put yourself in the right perspective. And when you see yourself in perspective to God, it causes us to close our mouths causes us to let our words be, we don't come before God boasting in us when we really recognize whom God saves rightly, that he chooses the least lost and last. We come before God with reverent humility, not boastful pride. We don't come to speak, we come to listen and to respond to what God speaks to us by making much of him. And so Paul says, you want to know how you can trust God? Consider first whom he saves that he works through the people you don't think or the world doesn't think he would ultimately work through. But then he gives him the second thing to consider in the next set of verses. So he says, so that no human might being might boast in the presence of God, verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Paul first invites them to consider whom God saves, but now he begins to invite them to consider how God saves. So he says, reflect on the nature of how God actually saves those that he chooses to save. One of the aspects that can help us from trusting in human wisdom over God's is when we recognize the nature of our salvation. Paul highlights here for the Corinthians that salvation is a sovereign act of God's grace, that God alone is the one who saves and rescues people to himself. 
Paul has highlighted throughout the text God's choosing of the Corinthians. Now here, he reminds them that God is the cause of their salvation. He is the one who ultimately brings them to himself. For Paul, God's sovereign grace seen in his election of those in Christ should cause us to trust him more deeply. Because not only did God choose the least for salvation, but he's the one who effectively saved them. That's why Paul begins, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, not because you were so smart, not because you had something to bring to the table, but merely out of his action and his grace, he brought you in to Christ so that you might experience the life that he created you for. As Paul continues to reflect that, he wants to help them see it's because you're in Christ and the full nature of your salvation that you can begin to trust in God's wisdom and power. While he had just reminded them that they weren't wise, they weren't powerful, they didn't have great status, what he does now is to turn to remind them, but in Christ, this is who you are and what you have. This is the reality of what God does in his salvation. And that's why Paul says that Christ became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom here, as Gordon Fee says, New Testament scholar, does not have to do with getting smart or status or rhetoric. God's wisdom, the real thing, has to do with salvation through Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at. Christ became salvation for you, the wisdom of God. And he brought to you what you needed. And when you step back and really consider how God saves out of his grace and what he does for us, it's incredible. Paul highlights in three words three things that God does in his action of salvation and how he saves us. The first term Paul uses here is that Christ became wisdom to God, from God, became righteousness. In Christ, the believers in Jesus have received right standing. That's the idea of righteousness. They stand rightly before God. The imagery of righteousness for Paul in the New Testament really comes from the courts and forensic language. It's the idea that before Christ, the Corinthians and us stood guilty in their sin for violating God's law. But in Christ Jesus, God has made us right. So we were in the wrong, but in Jesus, we are brought into the right. So therefore, we can stand before a holy God and have relationship with him. And Paul wants to remind them, in Christ, you were made righteous. Not only that, Paul reminds them, in Christ, you were sanctified. He became your sanctification. Not only has he brought you right standing before God, but he's also caused you to be set apart for him. That word sanctification, that's a good churchy word, isn't it? Right? When's the last time you had a conversation with your friend and you used the word sanctification? I guarantee it wasn't outside of a church context, likely. And so many of us, that, that word seems foreign. The word sanctification is really rooted in the word sanctify, which means to be made holy. And the idea of holiness is to be set apart. So really it means to be set apart. And when Christ became sanctification for us, what it means is we were then set apart for God. The imagery that Paul's drawing here is the Old Testament covenant where God made a covenant with his people and set them apart for his purposes in the world to make them a community under his rule and reign. And what Paul's saying is when you trusted in Christ, you were brought into that community. You were set apart for God for his purposes in the world. He now marks who you are 
both individually and collectively. Christ is our sanctification. And then the final term, Paul reminds us of the nature of our salvation, is that Christ is our redemption. Here, Paul reminds us that the believer, those who have put their faith in Christ, has been transferred from slavery to sin to freedom in God's kingdom. Again, the image for Paul comes out of his world of slavery. And in his world, you would pay a purchase price to redeem a slave from their slavery so that they could be free. And what Paul reminds them, even just using this word and what he unpacks in other places, is because of our sin, we are under slavery to it. We cannot act in the way God has created. We cannot live under God's rule and reign in the way we were designed. But in Christ, Christ becomes our payment to redeem us from that place. To take us, as Paul would say in Colossians, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Jesus, you've been redeemed. And so what Paul is trying to do in highlighting these terms is to help them see, look at the incredible work of God's salvation. Look at how he saves. Look at what he provides for his people in what he saves. And see for a moment that everything that you have in Christ is because of him. It's his work alone. Paul Gardner, New Testament scholar, gives us some helpful language here in describing this. He says this, Since those who were not now are in Christ Jesus, that's Paul's point, before Christ you were not, now you are in him, their status before God is established and confirmed. Through no action on their part, through no degree of human wisdom or plan, God worked in Christ crucified to accomplish all that was necessary to allow them to stand before God. Paul clearly shows that even how God saves is entirely an act of the grace of God. One of the things that we all have to wrestle with in the nature of salvation, what it means to experience it, is the question of when it comes to the way God saves his people, is that an act entirely of God alone or is there things that we bring to the table? And I think if we take Paul's language seriously here and in other places in the New Testament, what Paul reminds us time and again is salvation is an act of God alone. We don't bring anything to the table. Even the faith that we receive God's grace through is a gift from him. And what Paul says, it's because of him you're in Christ. It's because of him you're righteous. It's because of him you're sanctified. It's because of him you are redeemed. And when you recognize that, it will cause you to respond appropriately. And that's where all of this builds to Paul's main point in the passage of how you can trust God's wisdom over human wisdom. And he gives it to you in the last verse. So as you consider how God, whom God saves, and you consider how God saves, it leads you to the right response, which look at verse 31. So that, right, he's giving you his reasoning now. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What Paul reminds us is when we consider how God, whom God saves and how God saves, it leads us to only one place which is means we will not boast about ourselves. We will not make much of us. We will boast in God, and we will make much of him. And when we do that, it allows us to trust him no matter the circumstances of life. When we understand that salvation is a complete act of his wisdom and power, then that's what we're going to talk about and speak about. Because here's the thing. 
What you speak about, what you boast about, is what you trust most. What you speak about is what you trust most. And Paul says, if we really get the nature of our salvation, what we will speak about most is Jesus. During the Reformation, in response to the false claims of the Catholic Church, the Reformers began to dig into Scripture to understand the very nature of salvation. What is it that God does in his act of saving? And one of the great truths that they recovered out of Scripture from Paul and others is the reality that when it comes to our salvation, we are saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That that is the nature of our salvation. But what they realized is when we really get that, that salvation is an act of God's grace that comes to us through faith and ultimately is centered in Christ, what that leads to is us making much of him and boasting about him. So during the Reformation, a group of pastors and leaders in the country of the Netherlands got together for a famous synod known as the Synod of Dort, where they produced a document called the Canons of Dort, which described five aspects of scriptural teaching on the nature of our salvation. And in that document, they give some really good language to help us see the nature of our salvation and how that leads us to actually boast in God's wisdom and his power. This is what they write. Listen to this. It says, The fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to human effort. No, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity God shows his own in Christ, so within time God effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds. Did you catch that? So what did God, God did all this in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of the one who called them out of his darkness into his marvelous light and may boast not in themselves but in the Lord. When we truly consider the nature of our salvation and that is in an act of grace alone, it will cause us to speak much of Jesus. Maybe you can think of it this way. So let's imagine this afternoon, it's a beautiful day outside, it's the end of summer, and you decide, I'm going to go out to Kensington Lake and I'm going to rent a kayak and I'm going to just kayak out into the lake and enjoy some sunshine and water and just a beautiful summer day. So you go out, you get your kayak, you rent it, you hop in the water, you start to, to go out. The person comes to you that you rent it from, they say, hey, here's your life jacket, take it with you. You say, I don't need it, I'm a good swimmer, I'm fine. I don't really like that, it drags me down anyway. You head out in the lake. But unbeknownst to you, your kayak has a small hole in it. So you start to kayak out, and you get pretty far out into the middle of the lake, but you've been slowly taking on water, and suddenly your kayak's going under, and there's not a lot you can do about it. Pretty soon it's heading towards the bottom, and you're stuck treading water in the middle of the lake without a life jacket. And after a while, you realize no one's really around you, and you're not sure if anyone from the shore can hear you. So you start yelling as loud as you can, but nobody's paying attention, no one's turning, and you're starting to lose strength pretty fast. You get to that point where your head starts to bob up and down under the water and you realize, like, if something doesn't change quick, like, this is about to be the end. And so imagine with me you're in that place and there just happens to be a lifeguard on the beach. And this lifeguard has a keen sense of eyesight. 
and they happen to notice you flailing out in the middle of the lake. And so they hop in and they start swimming. They know there's not much time. And they head out to you. They swim all the way out to you in the middle of the lake right as you start to breathe that water into your lungs and you go unconscious. And that lifeguard scoops you up in their arm and they one-arm stroke it all the way back to shore, pulling you the entire way. And when they get you to shore, they immediately start CPR to revive you and sustain you until medical care can come. And they're successful. You're revived, right? You live and survive that incident. So imagine that happens. Now imagine with me then, a couple weeks go by, and you're at dinner with your friends, and you're having a conversation about this story. Who are you talking most about? What you did or the lifeguard? Are you having the conversation with your friends of like, man, you should have seen me out there. I was awesome. You should have seen how long I treaded water. You should have seen how well and loud I yelled so that somebody could save me. No, you're not having that conversation. You're like, I can't believe this lifeguard. I don't even know how he spotted me. I mean, I was going under. I don't even know how he had the strength to get to me and swim back. This guy was amazing. And then he stayed with me and cared for me to make sure that I would actually live. Like, this is the most amazing lifeguard I've ever experienced. Can you believe it? I'm alive. Because when you recognize the nature of where you were and the peril that you were in and what took place to save you, the focus of your boasting, your speaking, is going to be on the one who saves. And the truth is for our salvation. When we recognize that apart from Christ, you and I are headed on a path to eternal destruction, separated from God. We're going under and we have no power or ability to save ourselves. But that God, out of his mercy and grace alone, saw us in that place and did what was necessary by sending his son to die for our sins and rise again and then does everything necessary to rescue us from that place, bringing us to himself, sustain us through this life, and carry us on into eternity. What we'll do is we'll step back and not say, look at me, I am awesome. Look at my gifts, my power, my strength. No, no, no. We'll say, do you know how awesome Jesus is? Like, do you know what he did for me? Do you know the mess I was? Do you know how trapped in sin I was? Do you know how broken my life was? I had nothing, but Jesus stepped in. Jesus rescued me. Jesus gave me what I didn't have. Jesus called me to himself. Jesus sustains me in this life, and Jesus will be faithful to carry me home to eternity with God forever. We will make much of Jesus. That's what Paul's reminding him. When you really think about your salvation, when you really consider what God does, man, you'll boast, and it'll be in Jesus all day long. And so if we're not boasting in Jesus, if we're following the pattern of the world, then two things have either happened. One, we have not, well, one, we've not actually experienced salvation. And if that's you this morning, we want to invite you to experience it. There is nothing better than experiencing the saving grace of God and putting your faith in Jesus. And God is still calling men and women into himself and saving them, and he invites you to that this morning. But if you have that, but you find yourself not in the place of boasting, then maybe you've forgotten the nature of your salvation. Maybe you've forgotten where you were. Maybe you lost sight of the peril that you were in and what God did to rescue you. And what Paul says is, go back and consider that. Consider who you were. Consider what God did. Or, or maybe we fall into the trap to thinking that when it comes to our salvation, the first half is up to God, the second half is up to me. 
So we stop boasting in God. We're like, yeah, God rescued me from sin, but now it's up to me. I got to figure it out. I got to live the Christian life. I got to. What Paul's saying is, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Grace, this is the good news of grace. The good news of grace is if God saves you, he'll save you completely. He'll do the work. He'll finish it in you. He'll give you the power. He'll give you the resources. So you don't have to rely on yourself. You rely on God. And when that happens, you don't fall into the trap of like, well, now I got to do it, so I got to worry about me. No, you live a life that keeps going back and saying, God, God, Jesus, he's my sustainer. He's with me. He continues to give. He continues to provide. He's the one I look to. When we really recognize our salvation, we will talk about Jesus. We'll be that sort of people. We'll be the sort of people that talk to Jesus with people that don't know him, and we'll be the sort of people that learn how to talk to Jesus with people that do. I mean, this is why one of the things we're big around here is life groups. Because we want you in a community with people where you're learning to speak about Jesus. One of the things we encourage our life groups to do is practice what we call gospel fluency, which is just learning to speak the truths of the gospel into the everyday things of life. We want Christians, when they get together, to talk about how awesome God is, what he's doing, when we're in those places of struggle, when hardship comes, when we're in those questions, to go back and speak to one another. Yeah, but, but remember, this is what Jesus did. Remember, this is what Jesus has given you. Remember, this is, this is who you are in Jesus. Because as we speak Jesus to one another, as we boast in him, it leads us to the place to trust more deeply in him and to have that sort of ability to walk through the challenges of life. We want you to be in a context where you speak Jesus. And as you do that, here's where Paul leads us. Here's where Paul reminds us. As you do that, as you make Jesus center, as you follow him in contrast to the patterns of the world, as you speak about him, that's what begins to create unity in the church. When Jesus is the thing you speak about most, you won't divide along political lines because you'll be more interested in speaking about Jesus than your political perspective. If you make Jesus what you speak about most, then you won't divide along racial or economic lines because you're more interested in speaking the truth of Jesus to all people than just some people. If you really consider the nature of salvation and begin to speak Jesus, you won't divide over the patterns of the world. Who has wisdom? Who has power? Who has polish? Who has this and who doesn't? Because you'll be too busy making much of Jesus. And that's Paul's whole point. Don't go there. Don't go where the world wants to lead you. Don't make its values your values. Don't set that at the heart of your community. Make Jesus the center of your community. Consider whom he saves. Consider how he saves and boast about him. And that doesn't mean we don't have important discussions. Don't hear me say that. It just means we're cautious about creating division with our brothers and sisters because we're so interested in glorifying our Savior. So Paul says, you want to have unity in a world of division? Then be a community that puts Jesus front and center over and over and over again. And when you take time to consider whom God saves and how God saves, you'll do that. You see, at the end of the day, here's the thing that I realized about my professors. You know what they talked about most? beyond their subject matter, 
And it was consistent across the board. They talked about themselves. You've had those professors. They were smarter. They knew better. And anything that would come along that would challenge them as the center of their world, that was foolishness. And that's why the message of the cross comes off as foolishness. It can only be received when you turn from trusting in yourself and you begin to trust in the reality of Jesus. And what Paul says to the church is, as long as you trust in yourself, you'll divide. But when you humble yourself before God, when you recognize he saves the least lost and last, when you recognize he does everything to bring you into his kingdom, then at that point, your trust will be rooted in him and you'll turn from yourself and you'll be a unified people under Jesus. I pray that would continually be true of our church and community. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.